Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to a, another episode of the Broken Laws podcast with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Aaron Jackson. And we are joined today by uh, Mr. Michael Cannon for what is possibly one of the most relevant and important podcasts we've done about the future of rowing in the United Kingdom as a whole, but also, I suppose, principally England, and how clubs can best manage pursuing the goals of their members and also maintaining a strong sense of fiscal responsibility. Now, speaking of fiscal responsibility, this is the part of the podcast where I kind of ask everyone to remember that we have a Buy Me A Coffee website where you can, if you are enjoying the podcast, um, chuck myself and Aaron at something that is very similar to the price of a coffee, for which we would be enormously grateful. And we've had a few coffees bought for us in the past uh, month or two, making a podcast is not actually free and we have put quite a lot of time and actually quite a lot of money into this and to help us continue the podcast we would be very very grateful for your support thank you very much mr michael cannon welcome to the pod we're we're going to talk today a little bit about kind of the pursuit of henley fever and its consequences for um cl clubs on the tight way but clubs in general in England. Before we do that, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your history in the sport and what your sort of like where your insight has come from? Sure. Um great to join you. Uh very happy to um to 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 do that. So so I started as a as a college rower back in uh, 99 uh, up in Durham. I was at Great College there and I Packed around on the River Weir for a bit. I rode, I coached a bit, I captained, I did some, I was captain of colleges up there, running some intercollegiate events, and then I helped uh, with the Durham Regatta for a couple of years too. And then after that, um, I did my PhD, sort of my, my degree and my PhD, and I taught maths and I coached rowing for J15 boys for, for one year. That was literally my that was a very different experience to coaching uh, uh, students, J15 boys. Uh, but a lovely, uh, a lovely school and uh, and a nice program there to to work there for a year. And then I've moved on and I work in uh, research and development. And I was at Staines for three years, rowing in a pair, and then a year at Eton Excelsior, three four years at Maidenhead, and then into London. And I was at Vesta um, for a certain number of years. And then a couple of years ago, I've moved to London. So I've moved around the mid-Thames. And now I'm up and down the, the tideway when, when work and, and uh, life allows. Um, but I, I speak for myself. So I'm not, I'm not a representative of, well, of any of all of this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Could I just dive in there? Because it, it seemed, I mean, right from the start, it seemed that you've been involved in the organization side mm. of sports mm. clubs and being a member of a very small club myself, I know this is something I'm absolutely terrible about. I have like loads of great ideas for, you know, how we can make this into the Leander of the East down here again. 
um, you know, up, and, up to and improving, so like homemade explosive, like bombing the banks of the stout to make it wider. Um, but I'm not very good. I'm not a very good kind of committee member and, and sort of like club organizational man. Was that something you were just drawn to? Was it something you learned? Did you have to do it? Tell us a bit about that kind of part of your background. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm inexorably drawn to committee roles of one kind or another, and I can't really explain why. It happens at work and it happens um, at boat clubs. I just do. This is what I this is what I do. There's actually a, an interesting book I picked up uh, through work, through some training course on um, the birth order book. And it talks about the dynamics of firstborns, only children, middle children and youngest children, particularly. So it, like there's a there's a stereotypical type of all of those. And um, and I am just this uh, quintessentially firstborn like like this is this is like read that chapter that is what i do you kind of organize people you you set the rules you get the games going you, you make sure everybody knows their position yeah you're the one who um who's told you should know better you're the one who told who's told uh you're responsible for this um so for, and I, I do it myself and you know with the kids so it's 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 impossible to to avoid it but um you, it's just the parent dynamic of how you treat your older one because you can't rely on the younger one to do that like it's just it just grinds in a certain set of expectations and uh anyway for one reason or other that is yeah that's what i've done so um yeah that's from the outset i've i've done that and i'm very happy doing that before we start triggering any any families out there who have sibling rivalries that are ongoing, yes. rather um, this isn't coming across as some kind of dictatorial thing, although coming from a large Roman Catholic family, I can certainly see some of the dynamics you've just identified at play. But would it be fair to say you involved yourself in these processes because there, there must be, I'm presuming, a deep love and passion for just getting on the water and moving a boat. And if you want to see it happen, you just kind of took on the role of right. This is this is what I want to do. So let's make it happen. Yeah, each each of those different organisations, clubs, or you know, events or whatever I was involved with, and I'm involved with. Um, yeah, if there's anything I can do to help, there's just there's always a a limit. There's a risk that you spread yourself too thin. There's a risk that you you commit to too much and, and you try and manage that dynamic, I guess. But yeah, it's it's just trying to do what you can to to see yeah. to succeed. At all of those different clubs and organisations I've been in, I've always been a consumer as well as an administrator. So if I've been on the committee or I've been helping in some capacity, I'm also consuming the product. So so it's not it's not like it's a it's a I'm yeah. The two were always linked for me. Yeah. It's not a Napoleonic lust for power. You, you, you're not starting in London and planning on world domination anytime soon. No, I have, I have no, I have no plans. Uh, I, have, I have a fleet of one single, and that will, that will do. So we were kind of thinking about the landscapes and dynamics of club rowing in England and the UK in general, and we were thinking about how this reflects on kind of like the structure of the, both the geographic structure and the structure of the season and so what is your kind of like 
view of that and both in terms of the good and the bad about it well i think if you if you think of club rowing inland club rowing i can't really speak to coastal maybe we'll touch on that later but inland club rowing is you've got a, a lot of town clubs you know they are the club for their local their local area and it's not really a there's not really much competition they are the place you go when you live near it and then you've got certain metropolitan areas where you've got a lot of choice potentially in quite a small area and that drives a lot of competition and keeping up with the joneses and so the dynamics in those two different environments are worlds apart and and the but some of the fundamentals i think are are the same i think firstly there's a an increasing winner takes all um uh, sort of dynamic going on and and this focus on henley when there's lots of other great events and you know you um aj you will have seen um photos from from durham regatta back in the day when the banks are packed there's thousands of people you know they're 20 deep or something so so you know things have changed to the point that 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 henley is the focus of so much so much of the rowing community's summer it's a great celebration of the sport but but you know that's it's that's a change over the last what 10 20 years i guess it's become more of a focus um and schools and universities are churning out rowers into the club system and the school and the university resources have increased over the last 20 years then and they're the the, the place that sport plays in developing their equity and and you know, providing value to their parents and 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 all the rest and the students um, leaves this this sort of gap this expectation gap between what fully paid um, you know, certainly the private schools and uh, the the top universities what you can get the experience you get there and what is realistic for your regular club to, to sustain what what pressures i mean what influence does this put on you know obviously there are very high performance clubs that i i you know let's let's call them by name thames tideway scholars london um to a certain extent agecroft um and there are a few others around the country a, a lot along the thames valley they I'm presuming they are responding to this and trying to extend that concept of what a I don't know a high performance, but certainly a a well-funded university or school program provided. But how does that then affect all the other clubs? Because as you said, there's this keeping up with the Joneses idea. Well, I think if you so in in the universities you've got Brooks and in the the um, in the club rowing you've got Thames particularly of course there are other players as you say but it's not even even in the boat race the last how many years has Cambridge taken all of the trophies so so on the individual level people are moving to these clubs which they if they are in, if they are one of the top rowers, the top scholars, 
from from of their of their year as they leave university or or as they you know move into into the right place to to join those clubs um then then they're going where they think their their personal chances of success are highest and that makes perfect sense yeah they're they're mm. following the you know they're making the best decision for themselves but the market dynamics of course that that drives and the um you know that that warps the, the landscape for everyone else that for the other clubs and having a healthy club ecosystem whether it's on the tideway whether it's in the in uh, england and the uk as a whole that's that's made more difficult because because people are are understandably attracted like a moth to a flame to these to these beacons of really high performance backed by really strong funding and funding either from um you know the the, the sport as a whole or from you know, weddings hospitality you know there's some clubs that have those sorts of clubhouses and and the ability to bring that sort of money in and bring that to bear and and uh, deliver for their roads somebody back when i was a very very callow rower in norwich where the first club i was ever part of one of the more experienced rowers and you know he was he was senior enough that he could get get into the silver goblets and nickels any year that he wanted to essentially he, he had that many wins under his belt back in 2004-2005 what he said was you never want to be the best rower in a squad or you, no, you never want to be the best rower in the boat as soon as you're the best rower in the boat you're pulling everybody along and there's another club or another crew somewhere that you could sit either either at the bottom of or in the middle of so it's not just a question that people are coming out of the university and saying oh where am i going to go and row and obviously there is this massive crosstalk between newcastle university and thames but even if you you know you're a skinny 21 year old and you go and row at pick a and other tideway club Putney or Vesta or one of these things and over two or three years you build up you're probably if you sort of like getting to that 615 609 kind of level you're gonna and you're really handy with the blade you're gonna start thinking about going to a club where there are more people at that standard yeah I, I so the 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 phrase you you've quoted there you want to be the you want to be the actually I, I my version is you want to be the weakest rower in the boat because you've got the most of, most to learn the most of most to benefit and I think that's that's I think that that's personally I've always enjoyed it but people spend so little time in the sport in many places that that it's just a transitional phase they want to do two three four years they're not really in it like I when I joined my college back in 99 I wasn't in it for 24 years I wasn't thinking well this is the first step in it i'll buy my skull when i'm when i'm 30 and i'll learn to skull. no it was none of that it was just i'm going to start it now and but some some of the rowers in these top clubs who are represented in um you know in the later rounds particularly at, at henley and at other big you know the finals of big regattas at dorney and so forth they you know it's a it's a, it's a very intentional two three four year campaign and and then right 
maybe they're out. Maybe that's enough. And then, then they move on and do, do something else. Maybe triathlon or bikes. Yeah, yeah. Something else. Yeah. Yeah. Ultra marathons. But I think the thing that we're, that, that we're kind of driving towards is if you look historically at British rowing over a longer period of time, there's always been a diversity of clubs, a plurality of pathways open for people who want to row. There, for want of a better way of putting it, there, there have always been working class clubs, there have always been um, upper class clubs, there have always been high performance clubs that might have links to the squad, like a like a Leander used to be the de facto home of British rowing, and now it's moved up the road at, at, at Caversham. But when you start to see the domination that we've had over the last five or 10 years of certain clubs, Thames have done fantastically well. I am on record um, this time last year of, of calling out their program because I feel that they quite deliberately cheated by parachuting rowers into their boat who weren't eligible for their boat in certain events that would have been noted in their Henley applications going forward. You don't have to have to uh, commentate on it, Michael, that's fine. Oxford Brooks are in a really good moment right now because at some point in the teens of this century, they realized that they were in the right geographical location. They were in the eye line of the squad. Um, they had a university and educational facility that they could use to attract rowers to their program. I have it on reasonably good authority that um, junior rowers who want to go there, who have the right scores, are being offered um, places for less than the standard A-level tariff that they might be at other universities. So they've really taken advantage of that to produce this, this all-conquering powerhouse. Now, that's fine. That's taking advantage of the system as it stands. It's taking advantage of the fact that British rowers, we treasure Henley, we, we like to row on on the reach at Henley, we like to do Henley Royal Regatta. We all dream of winning a little red box. The reality is that historically, very, very few people win a little red box. It's really, really hard to win. It's an event that's really, really hard to qualify for. But if you're a J15, J16 rower, and you have potential squad ambitions, and you're already winning stuff, why wouldn't you go to Oxford Brooks when it's there? Well, here's the thing. Andy Hodge had never heard of rowing until he went to university. He was a rugby player um, and he happened to be at a freshers fair where there was a free slice of pizza for a 500 meter. How fast can you go over 500 meters? And he went on to be the, the greatest stroke of his generation, the greatest British stroke of his generation. Kath Bishop had never tried rowing before she went to university. We have Rory Copus, who was a, a wonderful guest and a wonderful chat saying, unless you have these scores, don't bother going to Oxford Brooks because you won't get in. If we start closing down university programs and if we start closing down club programs, it took me 10 years to get to Henley at Agecroft because Agecroft was a very, very good club and you had to, had to work your way up. Um, if we start closing down these programs where you can only get to Henley by going to Thames, by going to Oxford Brooks, or your club will just potter around in the smaller provincial regattas and never get a chance at head of the river Jackson or, a, or a, you know, getting to the first round of the Thames, we're just, cl we're closing down the sport to a vast talent pool of people who go, well, I will take up triathlon. 
I, I'll, I'll take my bike out for a ride. I'll go for a run instead. We're losing the next generation of Hodges and the next generation of Cath Bishops and people like that. Surely by this monomaniacal focus on a particular event and a particular way of getting to that event. Yeah, I, I think it's it's certainly true. That it's, it's expedient if you if you're in a if you're running a university program or running a club program. If you've got people who have road at school, have road at a very senior level at university, and taking them in instead of a place for a novice. There's very few clubs now on the tide where you can go as a novice. Vesta's one, um, and there's some other learn to row options, but not really like a learn to row option that will then bring you into a with the expectation of going on to race and and hopefully mm. moving into the main the main squad best is really the only one on the tie for, for certain but but that putting those putting that effort in but actually that effort pays back because that part of the squad that part of the club generates cash like the the, the course that they go on they pay for then they pay subs and at the same time, it tends to be quite a sociable group. They tend to be a bit older. They tend not to you know, not be quite the same 22, 23, 24 year olds that, that otherwise tend to join the club. So they they therefore, um, you know, they bring something different. Then they're not the same as the as the members that you already bring in. So I think, yeah, I think both for universities and clubs putting in some effort by to, to train some people up as as we've as I'm sure all of us experienced at some point, um, that's the only way that you that you widen the sport and you bring these people in. It's also the only way that you can sustain your club because if mm. if you're an athlete who turns up for two seasons with the expectation of making Henley and maybe going through the rounds, and you have no investment in your club, no emotional investment, it's just a stepping stone to a particular goal of yours. The rowers that you're talking about who come through the learn to row or who come down with a friend or who've tried it at a gym or who see Britain winning something at the Olympics, as I did, and, and go down to Agecroft and say, I'd like to learn to row. And, you know, as we've mentioned on the podcast, Dennis's first response was to make me do a 2K test at eight o'clock in the morning, which was sealed our friendship forevermore. Um, these are the people who tend to organize the cake baking, who tend to, you know, put a shift in in the kitchen who who tend to volunteer to get people on and off the landing stage for the the for the winter head season or the summer regatta or the or the or the whatever and as we know british rowing is fundamentally reliant on volunteerism but there's an increasing move of if it's all about Henley, we want professional coaching and we want a top fleet and we want someone out in the launch every session and we want a strength and conditioning coach and these things cost money and yeah. you know i wrote tiny united which is quite a small club i know the budget is always a concern even with durham in our compound because they now row up and down the time out of tiny united there must be clubs who are struggling financially because they've put they've put all of their all of their money down on we're going to get to henley and if we're successful at henley that'll drive intake and that'll that'll help the club come up but looking at some of the figures that you sent through from Companies House, it seems like even some of our very well-established clubs are nip and tuck with kind of keeping themselves above water. Yeah, I did a little um, a little survey of um, if you go through Companies House and the Charities Commission, look look at the publicly available accounts for different rowing clubs and different um, boat clubs. I mean, there's some that have negative amounts of cash because they've got um 
or negative assets that not negative assets negative um current okay. assets negative negative current assets they call it which is essentially cash but it's because they've got a mortgage because they've just done a big development or something like stains mm. um put in like a million dollar million pounds worth of uh, boathouse or something so there's some there's some special cases like that but then there's a lot of clubs that have between what like 20 and uh 20 and 100,000 in the bank working capital and um and some of those fluctuate you see year to year presumably they're buying a boat and then they 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 um have to um you know save up for the next for the next expenditure and so forth but then there's a there's a very small number of clubs that have a lot of money you know 500 plus um uh, grand uh sitting around uh waiting for for a use and maybe they've got something earmarked for it i don't know but but there's only a few of those but one thing my my thesis you mentioned gyms you know people who tried a bit rowing at gyms um the whole gym industry how does it survive it survives by people who don't go to gyms yeah so it relies on the low asset utilization member who doesn't hammer the showers and the weights and the running machine and she just doesn't turn up at all or turns up once a weekend or a couple of times a week or something so they're the people they're the backbone of the gym industry and so my thesis is that for rowing clubs you want people who are paying full subs it's nice to have the socials the honorees or the, the supporter members like that's that's essentially a donation more or less but um but actually if you've got active rowers who don't want the best kit and don't mind if they're not if they're not coached and certainly don't mind if they don't have a professional coach those those rowers are just are just money in the bank and and then as you say they can go on to be your um secretary of your committee or or run uh, run a head race or, or help with the administration of timing for some event or whatever. you know these are these are grown-ups who who can be in the in the sport for 10 20 30 yeah we've all seen them at the clubs dive in there and ask you like about this concept of the professional coach now i've i'm not quite sure what dennis's relationship financially to agecroft subs were i believe he was a supreme dictator for life in the in the okay. same way as the emperor palatine in star yeah. wars both yeah. my money and, and kidneys were his to decide yeah, pretty to much. at any different point but it's this idea that, um, and I've seen like kind of a couple of odd adverts floating around for various clubs where they're paying what I would consider a very healthy salary, um, possibly not for London, but a very healthy salary in order to coach rowing. Now, that, I, I don't. You know, maybe I've just completely sort of like not looked at, at this properly or not asked the right questions in clubs. But throughout my history, nearly every coach I've had has been a volunteer coach. Is this concept of the professional rowing coach who belongs to a club or more than one club, presumably, is this a growing phenomenon or is it have I just like not been at the right clubs? I think it's it's grown. If you if you look at the the adverts that are out right now, they're mostly in Oxford and London, 
and there's a couple elsewhere for schools and so on. But um, but I think the both, if you think of the dynamics in Oxford and London in the property sector, what's the rent? What's the rent to um, to average salary ratio in in Oxford in Southwest London? It's <laughs> it's not pretty, and it's not getting better. So so I think the the sector has grown. The number of roles has expanded, but it, can it be sustained I, with with the dynamics in in property because it it must it must wax and wane with with uh, with that market. This yeah. is unavoidable. We've mentioned um, the idea of keeping up with the Joneses. Is it not also something to do with that? In as much as okay, you know, Kevin, Dennis, and Steve were attached to Agecroft. It was their club, and I watched them literally grow it from a tin shed on the side of the Irwell, where you had to get changed round the back of the shed in the pouring rain to a gleaming world-class start facility via lottery funding, a lot of which was driven by their success when they were just a tin shed on the side of, of the river. I know Dennis is a, is a fully qualified high-performance coach, so is, is, is Kev, but it's that sense of, um, we never really thought of them as being that. They were just Dennis and Kev who coached us from the launch or who set our training program. Or The thing I'm thinking about, Michael, is Agecroft is unique in as much as, and I'm sure that Grosvenor and Chester will will not like this description, but they were very much the only game in town. If you'd been to Manchester Met and Road or University of Manchester and Road um, and you were staying on in the city and you want to consider continuing your rowing career, you're going to go to Agecroft because of the history, because of the Henley success, because of the Jackson success, because they had senior squads and dev squads, because they had this resource. On the Tideway, historically, there, there have been hundreds of clubs on, on the Tideway from, you know, both in London and then going all the way up into the Upper Thames Valley. Is there not a sense of we're a proper club, we need a professional coach to tell us what to do? Not where there's a will, there's a way, but where there's a, where there's a demand, where there's a demand for that, people will, will, will rise to meet that demand. So you might get a coach who goes to a Vesta or a Thames Tradesman or um, a Putney or a or a, a Lee or wherever, um, or not because they're invested in the club, but because there's a role there and because they want, you know, coaches want to be successful uh, as well. Yeah, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of pressure on the club administrators to, to provide that and, and, and to do so you have to make sacrifices. You know, the you've already got a lot of capital being sunk in in new boats. You know, if you're running a squad at that level, you've got to be replacing your your fleet. And most clubs, with a few exceptions, have men and women. So you've got to run a you know top fleet um, eight and a four, Coxless and Cox perhaps. Um, on the on the on the men's side and the women's, you've got to do a very similar thing. So you're already replacing those boats on a certain frequency that ties up a lot of cash and then you've got to you've got to preserve enough income to be able to pay someone to live in a um an appropriate quality of life because especially the i mean one thing for some people might do some coaching for for some beer money at the weekends and things yeah that's one end of the market but then there's people who 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 fancy doing this for their career and you know for life and, and and good luck to them but but to do so they won't want to coach people 
and feel like their rowers are in a better standard of living than they are. So in London and in Oxford, that ties your 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 head coach, it ties their salary to the salary and the living conditions of their rowers. Yeah. And and so as one goes up, as the jobs market gets tighter and the job market is very tight right now so entry level positions in london those, those salaries will have moved up the rents have also moved up too and you've got to allow for both of those for the for the salaries or the 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 pay that you're going to provide because the days of tim foster sleeping in in the loft above the boathouse having won his gold medal yeah. are pretty much over it does appear so yes yeah can I ask you, can I ask a question, Loon, before you dive in? And, and it might be where we're heading anyway. Um, looking at, I, I take a historical view of rowing, which Lewin occasionally slaps me for, but looking at, at London and the Tideway, there are a lot of very established clubs there. If you if you walk down the, the you know the mall at Hammersmith, you've got you've got Oriel Kensington, you've got half a dozen clubs within touching distance of one another that have been there for a long time. I'm presuming, probably wrongly, that they 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 own their their boat shed or their or their building, but this is London, which is one of the the most heated property markets and most expensive places to live in the world. So um, I guess the question I'm I'm asking are what what do the finances look like for the London clubs? And I, I know you've been involved in some, and I'm not asking you to comment directly, but can you give us kind of a feel of Incomings, outgoings. I mean, you mentioned the fleet expenditure, but I can't imagine that they're turning over much more than an Agecroft or a Bedford Star or a Time, a Time Amateur, where the costs the costs associated must be smaller because we're not in the metropolitan area. Um, well, I mean, most yeah. So most of them own own their own their property. Actually, the the one club which has recently come up for sale is HSBC. So I think um, HSBC bought bought the Midland Bank and have, have looked at their asset sheet, I guess, and, and decided to to sell up shop. So that that one's on the market. If someone's looking to buy a to buy a boathouse, there are about three or four for sale signs outside it right now. Okay. But um, but most of them are yeah, they own the the property itself. A lot of them, of course, very old properties because they because of the history. So you know, there's clubs that are 150 or more years old. Um, yeah. And they've been in the same building for quite a lot of that. Um, and there's a couple, there's like three, I think, that have significant uh, hospitality income. Um, okay. So uh, Thames, does a lot of weddings, uh, London also. And those generate significant surpluses, significant revenues to put into the into the rowing side. The... Um, uh, AK, they do quite a bit also, but most of them, uh, actually I heard that Putney Town is right next to Mortlake Cemetery and they do they do a very good business in wakes. So being so close, to the, yeah, they're, they're being so, being a bar so close to the cemetery, apparently that that's their, that's their. Um, that's their one of their incomes. That's, well, that's their competitive advantage and that's their you know, a handy income, I understand, but I don't, I've not seen any numbers. We're looking at the dynamic is that you're trying to attract in members and the members expect a reasonably top-end fleet of boats. They expect to be coached. They expect to be organised. Um, 
in the pursuit of success. And success really means Henry. Is, it, is, is, that, is, it, is that a reasonably fair statement for, for Tideway clubs? A lot of time. I, now, for some people, success is is getting to the weekend or winning Henley. For a lot of people, it's just qualifying and, yeah. and having your boat tent pass um, for the week and feeling involved. And that, when I was at Staines, I did I did the pair and I snuck into the goblets there. We we you know I wasn't expecting to win it. That wasn't that <laughs> wasn't the plan. But we did manage to sneak in after three years of batting up and down the the Thames there, and that's great. Um, and I did the same sort of thing with Vesta in the Thames Cup. We got in. Would have been nice if we'd got a win against Cambridge 99s, but they they beat us off the start, and we and we didn't get it back. So so that's fine. Like I'm not I'm not you know thinking about what might have been. But there's, so there's some people who are in that who are competing in that marketplace, and then there's a few others who are. Yeah, who are, who are gunning are really in their mind they're they're aiming to to win or or to come really yeah, good. Sunday, essentially. Yeah, the weekend. But, yeah, the weekend will win. Yeah, but which is, it, which is it strikes me that they're not sort of like there are a smaller and smaller number of clubs that are actually successful at that. Yes, which suggests that this whole kind of like pursuit of the being one of the four boats who meet the weekend at the Thames, the Wyfold, or the Brit. So you're looking at being one of 12 boats. And that, and in every single case, one of those 12, well, three of those 12 boats has been a Thames boat for the past, I don't know how many years. So it seems like the success at this pursuit is only being successfully pursued in certainly in one club, maybe a couple of others, maybe Molsey is doing quite well. Um, that that doesn't seem that sustainable to keep doing this. Well, I don't think I don't. In my view, it's not that healthy for the sport. It's obviously great for those individual clubs. It's great for those rowers. So nothing, nothing away from the rowers who, who you know, achieve their ambitions. They put in the work and they get get the result um, that they that they've worked for, um, and they get to race on that on that stage, and that's great. Something like the Wargrave. You look at the last year's this year's entries for the Wargrave. There were twenty slots, and seven came from two clubs either side of Rotherwood Road. Yeah. So that's that's an incredible focus in what. 50 meters of 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 river you know, real estate and yeah. and so there is a there's so there's not only that um hegemony at of the winning clubs but it's also um that so many so many of the entries per event can be taken up by a handful of clubs by a few clubs they can have so many entries and compare and contrast that with the way the princess elizabeth Eight, you know, schoolboy eights works that now it's schoolboy schoolboy and club junior eights firstly it's more inclusive there than it used to be um but you can't put two two boats in mm. if you're a school you've got a second eight you don't put it in the pe you put it in the temple yeah so so in there the stewards choose to protect 
for participation. They want to see representation of lots of schools and lots of junior programs. That's the, the, the bias that they built into the rules of, for that event. But that doesn't exist for the Thames Cup. That doesn't exist for, um, uh, there's nothing stopping you filling filling five entries for the Thames Cup, five for the Wargrave, five for the, you know, Brit, but, the, the Whitefold. Yeah. I mean, there's the, the form is is that big. I think there's some informal understandings between between uh, the clubs and the stewards that they don't they don't um, so that there's there is something in it for everyone. But but it can get really at the moment. It's it's really um, yeah. It's it's not it's not a healthy marketplace. I I'd suggest. The stewards might point to the fact record number of entries, record number of people going to qualifying, record number, you know, records amount of, of interest, record views on YouTube, record mm. number of visitors. And that's great. You know, the stewards do a fantastic job of keeping Henley Regatta running and have done for 150 plus years through all of yeah. the, you know, the, the vicissitudes of, of life and history. But when you're looking at a at a, a club event and you're seeing A, B, C, and D clubs coming through. And you, you know, thinking back to Lewin and I's own competitive days, um, or, well, Lewin's certainly still hyper-competitive. I am far less so. But you would see a Bedford. You would see a Chester. You might see a Kingston. You you know, Agecroft might have had that fantastic run in the noughties when they made six semis and a final before they, you know, we finally won the Brit. And, and we've carried on... We've always qualified. When you're seeing um, A crew, B crew, C crew, D crew, you're kind of thinking it's it's not quite as representative as maybe we might like it to be. Well, it's not as representative, but also coming back to what I was saying before, the way to get the most, um, the broadest income for the sport as a whole is getting lots of people at clubs um, paying um, paying full rates and not using the boats that much. So actually, if you if you're if you focus all of the competitive um, rowers in a fairly narrow set of clubs, then then that dilutes the experience for other people. So at, at um, I don't know, Quintin or something, if they're not if they're not putting a boat in, and if the club is 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 has a lower activity base than it used to then well the sport as a whole suffers if you just move redistribution of those boats you know if you could in in theory or if you could incentivize that if you could say okay well maybe you don't need maybe you don't need d boat you know that would only affect one or two clubs maybe you don't need a c boat that would only affect a handful of clubs and that would force some redistribution of of talent and of energy and give us a more healthy a more healthy ecosystem of, of, of rowing, particularly in the tideway, but not only. So, yeah, I mean, it, it would seem as though if you restricted crews at Henley to A and B boats, uh, not crews, clubs, to A and B boats only, that, that would quite literally kind of, I mean, that opens up four slots in all four events almost. Mm. Um, and it and it will then have the opposite effect of the desire to move if you're the best rower in your club or your crew is like right i'm going to go and see if i can get into a seaboat in thames as opposed to stay staying in the senior boat in 
for instance, Fern. Um, I, I don't know if Fern were putting in boats to Henley anymore. I, I've been banging on sort of like, I think on this, um, on the pod, but also in a lot, a lot of other forums for a long time about the need for a, a kind of gentleman's league in rowing where you're not going to be up against people who are saying, right, I'm the, the focus of my life for those three years is winning Henley. You're not going to be up against 18-year-olds who have been rowing with the same crew for the past four years. You're not going to be up against monsters who are almost an unrecognizable species from yourself. Um, and that was my feeling sort of like going up against Reading University in a quad once, um, that you're actually up against a bunch of other relatively time poor individuals with full-time jobs, possibly families, where yes, the rewards are less prestigious, but also that you're not just going to be essentially training material for um bigger clubs with people make other numbers. Yeah. just yeah. dedicated to this one thing and they're not thinking about their career they're not thinking about the time they're spending away from their family yeah and and there's then in some of those clubs um there are people who who they don't start their career so they, a lot of them come out of university programs and then they just put their they almost take a gap a couple of years you know they don't have a they, a job or they might have a uh, they might have a job in the local area but they don't it's not the career they're going to start if you see what i mean like they're, yeah. they're planning on going to the city or whatever they, you know they have some idea of what they're going to do in a few years time after they've trained three times or three times a day um for yeah. a year or two and 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 they have the financial support and the resources to be able to to have to sustain their lifestyle like that so that's that's not normal yeah and um, and I think also in um, in in vet circles, in women's vet, like the ratio of women's vet to men's vet, that's also not healthy. But there's like if you look at the vet's head from last year, master's head, I think there's uh, twice as many entries for uh, men as for women. And again, this massive drop off from from senior to to masters particularly on the tideway um there's a lot lot fewer senior um masters women kicking around on the tideway than than there are men that's going to cut down on marriages full of thames and ak yeah, well it also speaks to speaks to you know how often at what, at what age are people forming relationships at what age are they getting married this is a big city problem and this is not a rowing problem but this is a city an urban city problem that, that all of these things are, are mm. a lot a lot delayed but but isn't it also um it is it is that i'll get my career established i'll get established i'll get established professionally i need i'll get my own place and once i've got all those things i'll start looking at marriage relationships whatever i mean i'm not suggesting that my parents generation were um, had it all figured out, but people certainly kind of got married younger and still managed to combine having children with building professional careers and also their other outside interests. It, it can maybe be done. But what I'm kind of thinking of there, Michael, with what you and Loon have just been saying is 
this idea of what a club athlete is and what an elite athlete is, is a bit of a perennial problem. Agecroft had this in the noughties when they basically ran into Leander in every semi and every final that they came up in in the Thames Challenge before the rules changed. And what you had was in Manchester, a bunch of um, doctors, lawyers, teachers, whatever, who were managing to fit their training in around building their professional career coming up against athletes who were, as you you know, pointed out, training three times a day and, and had ambitions for the national squad. They're both cl clubs, they're both club environments, but they're very, very different environments. And what I'm wondering is, and Loon and I have talked about this on the pod and we've talked about it with, with Andy Hodge and a few other, other people, is Loon and I really like rowing at small, what you might call provincial, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, regattas. Do we not need to widen the focus of, you know, as Kath Bishop might say, our definition of success doesn't just have to be making Henley, making Wednesday at Henley, making the weekend at Henley, um, going to a Hexham or a Talking Tarn or a, or a, or a, or a Lee or a used to be a, a Gloucester, Bristol and Ross over the bank holiday weekend used to be a fun one. Durham is still a fantastically subscribed regatta that gets an amazing turnout. I know that Henley look at it as one of its regattas that they take into consideration but you get a load of juniors and masters and and really interesting you know boats coming down from from edinburgh or over from cumbria to compete should we not be trying to widen our definition of what success in the sport is because otherwise it's just going to be unless you can make henley or win it f off you know this is not the sport for you and that's not great for inclusivity no and and but it, and it's I agree, but all of that's not helped that events with the weather, with flooding, with their finances, they're less likely to run. Yeah, you know, they they run fewer fewer times. Mm. It, it makes it makes the whole thing um, much. They're not. They used to be that events were a significant source of funding for clubs. They're not. They're if anything, they're a liability. Mm. They're an event that you want to to go ahead. You as a club, you want your enter. To happen, you know, London have the Met and uh, Vesta have the Eights Head and the Scholars Head, of course, the Vesta Eights Head, the, Ma the Masters Head and the Scholars Head, but um, but they're not they're not always going to run and they're not always going to generate much in the way of revenue. You might get a bit of a pop at the bar in the evening, mm -hmm. and that might be it. So so it's um, yeah, it's a it's a tough it's a tough um, uh, it's a tough challenge, but but I agree. All of those all of those smaller events should roll up into you know you want participation across all of them, and and if they all have a role for those local communities, I think all the, the local events typically, if you've got lots of juniors, you've got lots of um, uh, novices and so forth coming into the sport, that tends to pack out the the program of of those. Um, those I think primary was that what well, they they used to call these or this like calling these um more local events um and then the idea that you then move on to uh, Nottingham and and Dorney and and some of these other regional or national level events yeah I think that that would be nice but but it's it's um you know Henley has all of the they have they are they have to have them they have to market themselves because they are a business they have to bring in the money they have to have the sponsors because they've got this fantastic you know youtube production which I understand costs a fortune and 
And so they've got to make the numbers work too. So, so everyone's working hard here and everyone's trying to make this, trying to make this um, sustainable, but, um, but it's, it's not easy for, at any level. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you touched on an idea of kind of widening participation in, in the primary events, what were, you know, I think somewhat disparagingly called back in my day village regattas, but I kind of really like village regattas, frankly. Um, would, I don't know, if you're, because I'm, I'm in Kent and we've got the coastal leagues around there, one of the big things about that is you can essentially win what is called the grand aggregate of a season. Mm. And that, it's not the only championship result. There is the South Coast final championship um, held at the beginning of September, and it takes a qualification to get there and race there uh, of how many of the wins that you have for the rest of the season. But the grand aggregate score is essentially like the league, and you can win that on the basis of having a lot of second places and it's actually a very very big deal in coastal rowing that you did that fourth race day and came third rather than we didn't have a boat to put in that race and that you can make the next race and the race after that does club rowing inland need that kind of sense of a whether it's a local league or a national league that is administered so everybody can see my club has done this much and it's not just about winning it is literally about we made a semi-final we get points yeah i agree i've seen the the they got the same in the northeast right the the sculling series uh, yeah, the, 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 of... yeah the lds is a really good one yeah and um yeah, so no, I love that. I love that idea. I mean, one of the events we had at Durham, um, an intercollegiate event, was a ladder, and every, it was over three weekends. And every every weekend, you would race two crews, and if you won those two events, you would go up to the group above, and you lost those two events, you go down to the group below, you win and lose, you stay in the same bracket. So it means that each week of those three weekends, it hopefully gets more competitive. You're racing with people of the same of the same speed. So there's different devices you can use, but I mean, I was, um, I'm planning to come up to Durham, hopefully for Durham Regatta 2024 in my single. Don't, don't, I was gonna do that. I don't need to beat me. <laughs> I don't know that that's, I don't know that's a big risk, but so I was thinking, oh, you have to race open because they haven't got masters in the singles. So, so do I really want to race? If I show up at the Sculler's head and if I show up at the, the the pair's head in a double, even if I'm not quick, which I'm not quick, I'm going to pick up a ton of points because there's a load of boats there. So, um, so that's the thing is the dynamics of the points is, um, is perhaps not, doesn't incentivize you necessarily, but I've, I've reached the conclusion I'm going to do them anyway, because yeah, I'm not, the fun I'm of not doing going it. to win Durham yeah. Gatto, so there we go, I'll just turn I, Well, yeah. I, don't think, I don't think either of us are. I, I will count getting down the course without meeting either bank as a major triumph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the question I'm wondering, and I, I don't know if we can come up with an answer, is British rowing has always relied upon volunteerism. That's basically what has kept pretty much most of the clubs that, that all three of us have known um, 
in business and operating, if there is this focus on success in particular areas, and we've identified that there's an increasing idea of professionalism and professionalism costs money, there, there will come a tipping point where the volunteers who are doing it for nothing will go, well, I'm not doing it for nothing because X club down the road is paying a professional coach for this, or they have a professional for that, or, or you know, even administrative roles become professionalized. Um, it's how to make that sustainable, or we're going to see clubs essentially going to the wall because they won't be able to afford what they feel they need to have to survive in the 21st century. And the, the reality is what they probably need to survive in the 21st century is what they needed to survive in the 20th century, which is people who actually are in rowing because they like it and don't mind helping out their club with in, in whatever little time they've got left over from their professional roles and whatever. Oh, well, I can I can be a secretary. I can I can I can come and coach the devs on a Saturday, but I've only gotten you know an hour and a half, but then I've got to be away for family commitments. So I guess the question that I'm asking it is, is how do we how do we balance this? How do we balance what we've always had with what is currently developing? And can it be balanced? Are there are the positives we can take going forward? I don't think there are. I think I think in the long run, I think things will probably revert back to the mean they tend to. Mm. So so no doubt there'll be some places that can afford paid coaching and and paid administration and all the rest because they have some extraneous source of funding most clubs that don't probably can't do that or they or they can only do that if they can sustain a very large member base where most of them don't want it and are perfectly happy you know carving around on a sunday morning um on their own because that's the only way that you can you can balance the balance the books i suspect um but but the the issue about volunteerism is of course not is not limited only to rowing. So participation in clubs, full stop. People, juniors and and uh, and adults spend less time affiliated to clubs than they used to. So golf clubs are under pressure. Um, political parties have fewer people as members. You know, people are just members of of less stuff these days than they used to be. Mm. And um, and so that means you have to work harder to recruit. You've got to get your name out in the wherever you are, in your local town or in your community. You've got to try and drum up, get, get some outreach and get some people in the door to, you know, partnerships with schools and, and things like that to try and establish your name as a uh, as a as a as a sport and as a thing you can do in in that local area. It's hard and you've got to put resource against that. But but I think if I think if clubs do then 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 that's one way to 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 balance this to balance this need there's also maybe rowing as with other sports need to recognize that people might dip in and out of certain things they they might they might want to try rowing for a, for a year or, or for a season but then they might want to go and you know and I'm using golf because you've just you've just mentioned it they might want to go on and then try golf or tennis people tend to um they're more transitory in the way that they engage with things whether it's the way we engage with music or with 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 things on our screen now we don't tend to sit down and watch a movie we put it on in the background while we're doing something else for a, a, a example so maybe there needs to be more of a, a, a of a understanding that people might not sign up with you with their local club for 
20 years starting as athletes and ending as administrators because it's their club so so changing the model to adapt to the fact that someone might row only row with you for nine months before starting off and becoming a mountain climber or trying the next thing on their bucket list well it can but if you can if you can try and keep them involved if they're still going to go to the annual dinner if mm. they're still going to play some sort of some sort of supporters membership or if they want to donate on some sort of frequency might be quite a low a low amount then then maybe that can still work but but the difficulty with any members club is that it's only going to be as successful and as active as the number of as the as the member base ultimately mm. so so if if people are are spending less time in the sport and and then they go on then then yeah that makes it that makes it you've got to try and keep them keep them in the yeah. in the orbit somehow which is where things like um, alumni dinners. I, I know that uh, Durham, you know, have they meet up at Henley, and and there's an annual dinner that that attracts a lot of uh, alumni. Um, just through chatting with Dan Armstrong, one of the one of the assistant coaches there, it's it's a big thing to try and keep people involved, even after they've left the university, after they've left the program, and it might only be for that one night a year where where they meet up and talk about books or what they did at Henley ten years ago, or they catch up with people that they haven't seen for a while but it still keeps a kind of a, a link with the base in the sense of a wider network yeah i think the yeah for the university sector obviously the alumni and the schools alumni is a massive deal but similarly for clubs keeping people um i mean i i help with the the remnant um remnant enclosure remnant committee um i help with the remnant club uh administration a little bit and you see um tables get booked up for lunch and it's the Molsey crew of 83 or it's whoever they have these reunion and and of course that then leads that so in doing so they're they're supporting the 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 lunch tent they're, they're buying a, a ticket they're going to buy some beers over the over the bar all of that supports the whole the whole infrastructure so keeping people um engaged and uh even if it's not that frequent if it's a you know five or ten year anniversary thing then then that keeps ticking over yeah it helps okay um one thing so i'm going to ask a, a negative question now and then i'd really like to sort of like we're kind of coming to the end of the pod but hmm. i'd like and i'd like to finish on a positive note but last the last negative question almost what we could be saying and looking around and are there too many rowing clubs is it, it are we looking at a period that might be coming through from a purely economic perspective i'm not recommending this but there is going to be a certain culling there are going to be clubs that essentially aren't going to survive the next decade and their resources and the people who have joined them will join other clubs they will make those clubs bigger and more successful is just are things just spread too thinly at the moment? Can I can I add something to that, Lou? And, and it might be something because um, Michael might want to look at Tideway, maybe where he has more experience. There is a certain density of clubs on Tideway. So so I don't know whether you want to talk about that in a wider context, Michael, or in terms of Tideway and, and kind of, you know, uh, lower, mid and upper Thames, where there's it is a rowing river from top to bottom and there are there are a high concentration of clubs in 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 that area um i think the 
there's no shortage of of new young people coming into southwest london every year mm. so the if you i once i did some uh, i was thinking about buying a house and i looked in Putney. And it's all rental stock, so so it's like it, the the it's all priced for rental. So you walk around, you, what you got a budget or whatever it is, and you think, no, 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 this is I'm in the wrong house. This is not for me. So um, just the sheer volume in Wandsworth of um, of houses which have been converted over to uh, multi occupancy. Uh, there's just so many people pouring in there. Uh, now whether that translates to um, support for all of the clubs for tradesmen for quintin for um for all of these clubs i don't know i hope so um but uh, but it's, would we see some consolidation i don't know there's a, there's a lot of change in the in the property sector there's a lot of change in people's habits and, and what they do and in and interests and things maybe um but if if people don't stay in clubs if if we see the Median age of of clubs go down and down and down as the baby boomers, you know, pass from this mortal coil. Then, then yeah, you've got a problem because you're purely you've got an administrative problem, but also you've got, like we say, you just don't have enough length of um, income over a over a given member's lifetime with the club. Um, so if people spend if if that critical path of how long you're at a club drops from you know 10 10 12 years plus down to three or four then yeah that is a big deal because you don't have this this um this reserve of people chipping in smaller amounts for a very long time which um which has historically sustained them Mm. Yeah. And I, I guess with what you're talking about in, in London, that, you know, there's a new influx every year at the end of it, every university degree course, people move to, you know, the big to London to seek their fortune in a Dick Whittington-esque fashion. They mm. might only be around there for two or three years anyway, before they, they move elsewhere in the capital or they move or they move elsewhere for, for work. So you're not necessarily, that turnover doesn't necessarily lend itself to, a long period of engagement and, and investment with clubs, even if they are really into rowing anyway, as a result of juniors or university experiences. But this is where the property dynamics in London and to a certain extent in Oxford are really important because mm. it, 40 years ago, people would still have come to London to make their fortune or to, to, to establish themselves in marketing or whatever the mm. sector was back then. But then they could buy a house probably for £5,000 and that would have been comfortably you know they could afford the mortgage comfortably as a a very small portion of their income and uh even a single income back then you know single average income so the property dynamics are so wildly different it means that these young people come to london there is for very few of them any realistic prospect that they can consider buying a property within any commutable distance of the club so so then they can't really think about putting down those roots. However much they love the club while they're there and the people they're with, they you can't you can't imagine a path to oh I'll just I'll just buy that house in Rotherwood Road. It's oh it's it's one and a half million. How yeah. is that going to work? It can't, and then you've got to spend how much money converting it from multi occupancy back to a regular house. So it's just it's totally impractical. 
Yeah. And and that's totally outside the control of the individual, mm. totally outside the control of the club. But what you can do, there are still lots of people in Wandsworth, in Fulham, who there are still families there. Um, and and so reaching out to them. So more of the learn to row stuff, more of the novices starting later in life. But there are people who do live there, like mm. like like older people they are there but you won't they won't just wander in off the street on september the first um every year um like clockwork you have to go find them because they've got other things that, that they're thinking of doing anyway no fair enough okay to finish the pod on a positive note and i think this is really important because i, I think we have been a little bit negative shall we say uh, a little bit the apocalypse yeah. is coming, Lewin. The club apocalypse is, is coming. They know oh, it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like we can joke, but I'm like, I'm genuinely worried that, you know, yeah, I, I, I used to, where I started right in Norwich, there were old, completely abandoned boathouses on the River Yare that used to have clubs in them. There is a very, very nice boathouse on the river in Maidstone. The, so the Medway that runs through Maidstone that is hardly ever used. It, it's the King's Rochester boathouse and they don't go there. Um, and I'm just kind of, you know, and a great deal of my rowing that just takes place on my rowing machine. And I'm worried that the whole thing that I'm worried about is how sustainable is British club rowing as as a as the sport that kind of like we've spent we've all spent two decades in. Um because I quite like this place. And I'd like to like it to keep going. I just don't I don't know if like the maths works out. That's that's my worry. But positive, positive. Positive, positive right? What do you think is working? In British rowing, what is what are the good bits? There's obviously a much bigger, no. There's a, so there's obviously a much bigger focus on coastal. That's driven by the Olympics and the you know the Olympics are changing how they're allocating medals and so forth, and that drives British rowing and other governing bodies to national governing bodies to do the same. So the focus will shift more to the coast. That is bringing in some different communities from different people. That's 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 good in aggregate. It makes the job in uh, in inland rowing a little bit tougher. So those um, start coaches, GB start coaches that were in were in local communities, I understand that some of those being being withdrawn or, or moved around. So so we have to get used to that new landscape. Every club will have to adapt to the dynamics. But I think the bigger stuff, the bigger stuff is demography and where people live. So towns and you know people are moving to the cities all over the world. They're moving to the cities. This is not an English or a British phenomenon. So so if you are a town club, then you will have to adapt because that's where you are. You don't have a choice. And and so the people running those clubs have to stay clued into their communities and understand who are the who are the people they serve. Are the juniors are there are there um, uh, other people coming to sport later in life. But also there's places where 
like I, I go down to uh, Hastings and, and Bexhill from time to time. And Bexhill is a place known for, uh, it used to be a you know, place people would retire and, and, mm. um, and live out their final days. But actually, Bexhill and Hastings and so forth are now like being inhabited by families because you can get a house and you and therefore the the options available to the clubs down around that way are very different so they're getting people moving into that area families moving into that area because yeah they can live near the coast and they can they can still get to work in you know if it's london or one of the other towns nearby they can still do that so i think every club needs to keep an eye on where where their market is going and they have to treat themselves like a business i think is the is the difficulty whereas previously it was always maybe when things were cheaper boats were cheaper rates were cheaper everything was just a bit easier i suspect back in the day mm. and now clubs need to think of themselves as a business and think who is their customer and and you know who is their customer today and how are they gonna how are they gonna change the mix of offerings such that they they can be successful because it's a it's a competitive landscape between them and every other every other sort of uh, hobby pastime sport in that area yeah no um i agree i mean i i, I am very interested to see what, what happens with the change in the olympics i mean well, I say that. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to live long enough to actually see the complete outcome of it. But you know, Los Angeles going down to a 1500-meter mm. event, which is essentially for the top eights, will be under four minutes. Mm. Um, I'm interested to see whether that changes the kind of athletes that are rowing there. Um, and yeah, the, the coastal thing where there isn't this kind of, you know, particularly in the very, very heavy, heavy beach sprint boats, which are designed to deal with rough water. It's like borderline Aussie surf boat rowing. Um, I, I think there is a, there is a very, very interesting potential for rowing clubs and for, frankly, seaside communities to have kind of kind of very focal um organizations within them that are based around what must be you know if you're at Bexhill or if you're at Hastings or Shoreham where they already have traditional coastal clubs there's suddenly okay right we've got a coastal club that can also do an Olympic sport um I, I think there's that is a that's a real bonus that could be very, very interesting um, for all people. It's, it's also changing the dynamic of rowing is 2,000 meters, balls out, lungs and liver out, to, well, it might, we've gone down to 1,500 meters. What about mixed crews? What about relay races? What about aggregate scores? You know, all of the things that we've taken for granted for so long in rowing that it, we row over 2000 meters unless it's Henley when it's 2112 meters and we do head of the river like this and and the boat race looks like like the other I'm sure that some of the traditional elements will continue but there's at this time of change and, and movement there's room to look at well it doesn't have to be over 2000 meters it doesn't have to be 
um this particular format you know it, it could be who can get to the boy and you know do a handbrake turn around it faster i i really miss i know that met marlow and wallingford are never coming back to the rivers but i do remember marlow as as a regatta on the river and things like that um so there's always going to be change things are always going to change but it doesn't have to be the doom and gloom apocalypse that maybe loon and i have somewhat made it out to be and you very kindly pointed out some of the benefits michael so yeah we'll we'll survive one way or another but um yeah, yeah things will move on hopefully the better is there anything we've missed out that you'd like to mention before we we kind of sign no. off and no, okay. no, I enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. It's been a great chat. And don't beat me at Durham next year by too much. <laughs> See you later. Bye. Cheers. Bye.